Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This is the new King James. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So I want to continue the theme of this year and uh, first Sunday of February, I want to speak to you on the theme, Revive Relationships. God bless you. Please be seated. Because I'm kind of a teacher by nature, let me review that in January, our focus was on Revive Us Again. That doesn't have to end in February. It should really be the daily prayer of our life. And while our outward nature is perishing, our inward nature, our inward man, the Bible says, can be renewed day by day. I'm glad that renewal, spiritual revival, is an ongoing process. And as we preached and taught from Psalm 85, 6, it was a prayer of those Babylonian captivities, captives as they return to Jerusalem and Judah, to pray to God, revive us again. That's my continual passion and focus that as I grow older in life, I will not grow stale in my faith, but I will have a continual revival in my spirit. Amen. I'm thankful that in January, we know of four people who were baptized with the Holy Ghost and 12 people baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say, Lord, do it again. Do it for more people. Revive us again. Amen. Amen. Revival is this ongoing process, not a one-time experience. And, and we need the renewing of the Holy Ghost, and we need to be renewed day by day. But my, my message today is that personal spiritual revival provides the power to experience a relational revival, to revive relationships. I was thinking about lots of Bible stories, but... One in particular, when Jesus was on the ship across the Sea of Galilee, and when he came to the land of Gadara, there was a demon-possessed man who saw him get off the ship and met him there. The Bible said he came to him out of the tombs. Uh, one of the gospels say he ran to him. He lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even by a chain. People would try to lock him up because of his violent nature and demon possession. He would break the chains as if they were nothing. And uh, no one was strong enough to subdue him. You should never try to wrestle a demon-possessed man. In fact, I don't have a record of Jesus ever touching a demon-possessed person. He just spoke to the demons and cast them out. This man, every day and all night, he wandered among the burial caves in the hills of Gadara, howling, cutting himself with stones. He hated himself. He was full of the devil. But he ran to meet Jesus Christ, as afflicted as he was, as possessed as he was, and he bowed before him. It is an amazing story that Jesus cast the devils out of him. They went into a herd of pigs, about 2,000 pigs in when the devils inside of one man went into 2,000 pigs, they committed suicide. They ran off a cliff into the lake. 
But what about the man? He's completely delivered in a moment of time. Matthew, Mark, Luke record this in Mark 5, 15. The Bible said that a, a crowd of people came and they gathered around Jesus and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed before he was completely naked. He was perfectly sane before he was crazy. And the Bible said they were afraid. They asked Jesus to leave because it freaked them out to see the power of God in this man. Here's this man, no longer crazy, no longer naked, no longer cutting himself, no longer needing to be chained or restrained. He's not screaming out in torment. He left the place of the dead. Jesus, on this occasion, didn't do anything else. After he delivered this man, he's getting back in the boat to leave. And this man runs to Jesus and says to him, I want to go with you. But Jesus, who had delivered him from the power of darkness, said, no, I don't want you to come with me. What I want you to do is go back home. The New Living Translation says, go back to your family. Others say, go back to your friends. Jesus said, I want you to go back home. Because the revival that I have done in you, the revival that I have given you, you need to take it back home and restore some relationships that were broken by the power of the devil. So I am here today to declare in the name of Jesus Christ that the same power that delivered you from sin, the same power that broke the power of addictions in your life, it will restore your marriage. It will bring back your children. It will bring a family revival. It is my prayer that the power of forgiveness would be the power of reconciliation, that God would give us a revival of relationships. He turned this man's torment into a testimony of the power of God and of sin has separated your family, fractured your family, the power of God can put it back together again. This is the need of the hour in our lives, in our church, in our culture. We need a, a revival of relationships. Amen? Amen? Now, our relationship with God is vitally connected to our relationships with other people. When Jesus gave the great commandment about loving God, Matthew twenty two thirty seven, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. If you want to understand what all the Old Testament was designed to do, it was designed to get us right with God, and it was designed to get us right in relationships. Get right with God. Love him with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything that God is designed to do was to bring us back to him and bring us back together to bring a revival of relationships. Now, I know this is challenging, this work of discipleship that begins 
with personal revival, but extends to a family revival, to a friend revival. The Bible teaches that loving God is demonstrated by loving people. And the apostle John wrote to people who said they loved God, but they hated people. First John 4 20, if someone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. That's pretty strong. I'm glad I'm just reading the Bible. And if I was saying that, you'd get offended, right? I love God and hates his brother. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. In the Bible, I'm giving you an overview of a revival of relationships. In the Bible, God compared his relationship with us to the marriage relationship. Marriage is a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for life. Marriage is bound by a vow of fidelity or faithfulness. In the Old Testament, especially in the the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God compared backsliding, walking away from God to adultery. Jeremiah 3 and 5 spoke about backsliding Israel. What has she done? She has played the harlot. So when a person walks away from God, it is much like a husband or wife walking away from their spouse. That's how God sees our relationship with him. There's a, there's a vivid but painful object lesson in the Old Testament that God worked through the, the prophet Hosea. You know, those Old Testament prophets often had very difficult assignments. So God tells Hosea, the prophet, Hosea, I want you to go marry a harlot. I'm a preacher. You're going to marry a harlot. Sure, God. What? That's no big deal, right? So Hosea goes and marries this woman named Gomer. And the Lord is saying, I want to show you how I love people. And I want to show you what people have done to me. So Hosea obeys God and he marries this prostitute named Gomer. She has a son. And if you read the story and study it, it appears that this first child is the son of Hosea, the prophet. But then the Bible says she conceives again, and then she conceives again. She has two more children, and it's pretty clear that they are not the children of Hosea, but they are the children of Gomer. Gomer eventually walks away from Hosea. She goes out and she seeks other lovers. God says, I'll hedge her way in thorns. I'll make her miserable in her backsliding. She is an object lesson of Israel who's walked away from God. She becomes destitute. She is at the very bottom of life. She has had to sell herself into slavery. But God says to Hosea, I know you've got a right. This is implied. You have a right to divorce her, but this is what I want you to do. I want you to go down to the slave auction and I want you to buy your wife back. I know she's been unfaithful to you. She's played the harlot again. But I want to show you, Hosea, how much I love people. That even when they've turned their back on me, even when they've gone into spiritual adultery, I love them so much that I will purchase them back. That's what Calvary is all about. God created us in his image and after his likeness. But in his great love for us, he purchased us back by the blood of Calvary. 
So Hosea goes and he buys his wife back and he betrothes her again to him in faithfulness. But this is the story of God's love for people demonstrated in the marriage relationship. There's nothing closer to our relationship with God than marriage and family. The New Testament teaching on family is very clear. Ephesians 5, 22, wives submit to your husband, own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. I want you to just notice the parallel between God's relationship with the church and the husband's relationship with his wife. There's nothing more akin to our relationship with God than a marriage. That's this typology that Paul uses in the Bible. For the husband is the head of the wife, is also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. But you'll notice this balancing principle, and there's more than just verse 25. But Paul writes, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. There's a balancing principle. We're not going to ask her to submit to you unless you've submitted to God and unless you love her just as Christ loved the church and he emptied himself, he gave himself for her. It's easy to love somebody who loves you and serves you. It's much easier to, to submit to someone who's a servant to you and has given themselves for you. Christ in the church. So to those who are married, being right with God is demonstrated by the way we treat our spouse. Paul said that married people are going to have trouble in the flesh. So that doesn't mean if you have a disagreement, a misunderstanding, or an argument that you're backslidden, although you could be headed that way. The Bible says to be angry and sin not. Love and sin are far apart, but anger and sin are pretty close. And the way you treat your spouse could affect the way your prayers get through to God, especially by a husband that if you do not honor your wife, your prayers can be hindered. And because this is a balancing principle, I believe it cuts both ways. But don't think that you can please the Lord and just ignore relationships. If you love God, love your neighbor also. If you love God, then love your family as God loved you. We need a revival of relationships that is as practical as what we do every day in our families, in our personal relationships with other people. So today, I am sounding an alarm to say that our country needs a revival of relationships. We need a revival that changes us so it changes us toward the people in our lives. Spiritual revival leads to a revival of relationships. It's fascinating that God compares our relationship with him to family relationships. The Pharisees, these religious people, they thought that God hated sinners and longed for their destruction. So in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories to demonstrate how much God loves people and longs for them to repent. 
You know, all of heaven rejoices with one sinner that repents. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. This is the story of the prodigal son and his brother. It's a relationship between a father and his two children, his sons. Now, the younger brother is the prodigal son who went into a far country and he wasted his inheritance with riotous or reckless living. And after many days, he comes to himself and he comes back home and he is restored to the relationship with his father. This is an example in the Bible of how much God loves lost people who stray away from him. But there is an other, there's another brother, the older brother. He is still in his father's house, but he is relationally distant from his father. He's mad about his prodigal brother coming home. He's mad about the party his dad threw. He will not go in the house. So while he's in the house, I think he's lost in the house. He is out of a relationship with his father. So whether you're in a far country or you're just distant relationally, this story is about how God, he also went out of the house to the older brother to try to redeem him. This is a story of how much God loves people and it is demonstrated in a revival of relationships. Amen. Amen. Husbands and wives are responsible for creating marital harmony. Husbands, spiritual leaders in two-parent homes, and if they don't do their job, their prayers are hindered. I've said that earlier, and I believe it's a balancing principle. When both husbands and wives follow biblical principles concerning their roles, there's a possibility, it's difficult work, that there can be continual renewal and marital harmony. Husbands and wives were created by God to have complementary roles, not conflicting roles. A wife was created by God to complete her husband, Adam. She's taken from his side. And that's what God saw about his relationship, Christ and the church. But we also need a revival of relationships between parents and children. The Bible is very clear that children are to obey and honor their parents. But conversely, parents are not to provoke their children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Ephesians 6 speaks of this. And the ultimate goal of God is to bring families back together so families can come back to him. In Malachi, the Lord said that what is the Lord seeking from the marriage relationship? It is a godly seed or children who would love God. And that brings me to our text. The entire Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. Some of you are reading your Bibles through chronologically. And Malachi is not only the last book of the Old Testament in the order in which the canon of the Scripture was constructed, but Malachi is also chronologically the last book historically of the Old Testament. And when you read through the book of Malachi, you see the spiritual conditions that prevail. Jewish husbands were mistreating their wives. Jews were marrying pagan people who were leading 
these godly people away from the Lord that happened throughout the Old Testament. These people were robbing God by withholding their tithes and offering. Priests were neglecting the temple, not teaching people the ways of God. In short, Malachi tells us that these people are away from God and they ask God a lot of questions as if they are clueless about their estrangement from their heavenly husband. Malachi, these last words of the Old Testament. And when the ink dries and the voice of the prophet Malachi falls silent, God will not utter another recorded word for some 400 years. This is the intertestamental period, the time between the Testament. And from the final words of Malachi until the first words spoken in the New Testament, there are no recorded prophetic utterances. 400 silent years. So I want you to think about the significance of the last words that God would utter in the Old Testament of our Bible. What would God say to close the 39 books of the canon of the Old Testament, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets? This is what God said. This is how your Old Testament ends. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. What will this man who comes in the spirit and power, we learn of Elijah, what will he do? What will he preach? What will be his mission? John will come to revive relationships. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And the Lord is saying, this is what will happen to prevent me from coming to strike the earth with a curse. Of all the things that God could say could hold back his curse on the earth was revival of relationships with all the despicable deeds that are done by people in our society. God was focused on the revival that needed to happen and families. It is clear that Malachi spoke of John the Baptist in the New Testament when the angel of the Lord spoke to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. He said, and many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist's mission is to prepare the way of the Lord, is to break up the ground that is so hard, is to clear a path for the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to come. Here it is again, Malachi 4 and 6, and he will turn. What we need in our culture is a turning away from sin and a turning toward God. What we need in our culture is a turning of fathers toward their families, a turning of fathers toward their children. The preaching of John the Baptist was kind of firm preaching, hard preaching. He is saying, you've got to repent. 
He said the axe is laid at the root of the tree and every tree that doesn't bring forth good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John's preaching was strong and firm, but it broke the hearts of fathers. And he said he's going to come and he's going to bring a turning. There's going to be revival in families. It's going to start with men. It's going to start with husbands. It's going to be a change in them. Well, they will turn their hearts to their children. He's going to turn their hearts from their preoccupations, from their careers, from money, from their hobbies, from their pursuits. He's going to turn their hearts back to their children. And when the hearts of the fathers are turned to their children, then the hearts of children will be turned to their fathers. I am preaching today that the greatest revival that is needed in our culture is a revival of relationships. Malachi says, lest the Lord will come and strike the earth with a curse. It's almost like you can see in Revelation where these angels in heaven are ready to release the plagues and the woes and the curses on the earth. And there the cup of wrath is full and God is ready to pour it out. But something is coming. It is the John the Baptist revival. It is a family revival and it stays. It holds back the judgment of God. We preach about the judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah. The breakdown of the moral fabric of Sodom and Gomorrah may be laid at the feet of fathers. These hearts were not toward their children leading to dysfunctional homes. Amen. Revival of relationships. In our culture, we're in a terrible place right now. And we need fathers to turn their hearts to their children. Statistically, in our country right now, just America, percentage-wise, there are more single-parent homes in America than any other nation in the world. This formerly Christian nation that has drifted away from God. You can find varying statistics, and I've read a number of them to try to have a balance in what I'm saying right now. Over 18 and a half million children in the United States live with a single father or mother. That's the 2020 Census Bureau. 72% of the U.S. population polled say that fatherlessness is the most significant family or social problem that is facing America. According to a Pew Research study, as I mentioned, the United States has the highest Number of children, percentage of children living in single parent households. And again, percentages vary depending on who you read. I wonder why the Old Testament would close with this, with this prophecy, with this call of John the Baptist who would introduce the Messiah, turning the hearts of fathers to their children. I don't have time and I choose to not go into all kinds of statistics about all of the people in prison, about drug addiction, about the generational fatherlessness. I do not believe the Bible teaches generational curses, but certainly, you know, when a father sins and he leaves his broken home, then it tends to pass on to the next generation. Not a curse from God, but a culture that is perpetuated. 
My father came from that kind of a culture. Many of you come from a culture of brokenness. But I'm here today to tell you that God can turn that around. He can bring a revival of relationships that will change our culture. The fractured relationships can be mended. And unhealthy relationships can be healed. And God can forgive you of sins. And when the hearts of fathers are turned toward their children, I believe it's a trigger, it's a catalyst to turn the hearts of children to their fathers. We can say we need to get this young generation right and these kids need to get their act together and we can preach to the children all we want. But it really starts with the adults. It starts with the fathers and it starts with mothers as well. They're families that are surviving. But you're not really thriving. But when revival happens in us. When revival happens in us. It will give us the power. To revive relationships. So today I want to tell you. That this revive us again prayer. Is to be extended. To expect a miracle of reconciliation. I preached about the change that happened in Jacob. That led to the reconciliation with his brother Esau. I chose to not preach about it again today in my notes. But I'm just telling you that God can heal dysfunctional family relationships. It begins with an altar for parents, for fathers. And when the hearts of fathers are turned to their children, the hearts of children will be turned to their fathers. I would like for us to pray right now. For fathers, for mothers. Some of you are leading single parent homes. Some fathers, some mothers, some guardians. We need a revival with God that begins to change the relationships in our life. We cannot change the culture in one fail swoop, but we can change it one person at a time. For every time a man or woman comes to God and they have a personal revival, it will extend to a healed marriage, to a healed family, and we desperately need it in our culture. Would you lift your voice and pray with me right now that God would bring a revival to hold back the curse of God on our culture. Jesus, in your name I pray right now. I want you to expect today, this is not just a charge or a challenge, but I want 
you to know today that there is hope in this house. There's power in this place right now. It's one thing to say, I need to do this, and you should do that. It's another thing to know that you can. Across our congregation, some of you gathered here now, some who will be in our 1130 service today, the people that came in this place, broken, battered, bruised, dysfunctional. But when you turned your heart to God, God healed your spirit, forgave your sins, delivered you. I can assure you the next place God pointed in your life, pointed you to your family. I recognize the Bible said as much as it's up to you, live at peace with all men. Sometimes you can't fix that broken relationship because the other person has a will that God at this time will not violate. But just like Jacob, when you get right with God, there's a power and the potential to heal fractured family relationships. Would you please stand? I'd like for you to gather at the altar today and if you're with your family, would you come with your family? If you're by yourself today, but you desire God to work in you so that in turn, he can work through you. I want you to come just by yourself. I want you to pray that God would give you a family revival, that God would give you a revival in your friendships, that God would turn, that God would turn you so he could turn them toward him. If you were raised in a fatherless home, you don't know what it means to have a father, much less be a father. Over the next few weeks, we're going to try to work on that some. The practical work of discipleship. But today we need, we need God to turn us toward Him and turn us toward them, our family, our friends. Let's pray right now in Jesus' name.